0: what it is rjla family i am angela birdsong your conversation piece host on rjla morning wake up call at radiojustice.org or something new or unusual to talk about for stimulating conversation for you on the bus train plane or simply at the water cooler or in cubicle nation today on conversation piece my guest is Ashanti Daniel, who was blindsided with a diagnosis of ME, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Imagine being a picture of health, physically strong, and a neonatal intensive care unit nurse to experiencing profound muscle weakness, overwhelming fatigue, and other debilitating symptoms that her doctors could not explain, except that maybe it was psychological. Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, the search for answers in the healthcare system about this illness and the structural violence against it. Ashanti Daniel, welcome to Conversation Piece. And before we get into your story, tell us what is ME and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome?
1: Okay, ME stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis, and as Angela stated, it is commonly known as chronic fatigue syndrome. However, those of us that have this illness prefer to go by myalgic encephalomyelitis because the term chronic fatigue syndrome trivializes the illness. It is considered to be a neuroimmune illness that attacks literally every single system in your body. Um, Doctors have not done enough research yet, so they're not exactly sure what causes this illness, although many people develop it after a viral illness.
0: How long ago did you have to become an ME warrior?
1: I became an Emmy Warrior in August 2016. That is when I was blindsided by the illness. Unlike some of the other Emmy Warriors who got sick gradually, my illness was immediate. It was like getting hit by a
0: train. Now, now before we get you know, deeper into your story, what are, what are some of the myths of of ME and CFS?
1: Uh, There are some doctors (laughs) who still tell patients that this illness is all in their heads Um, and that's not just in this country that's in other countries all over the world believe it or not because it is an illness that primarily affects women and women tend to be disbelieved this is why we're in this situation where one of the myths is that it's all in your head believe me It's not in your head (laughs) at all. (laughs) This is no psychological um, basis at all whatsoever. It is a physical illness that affects your physical body. Um, But one part of the illness is because we do not look sick on the outside, that we're not suffering on the inside. And I like to say that that's sort of a blessing and a curse for me because the blessing is, yes, I don't look sick. I look, you know, I'm thinner, but I look like myself for the most part. However, that allows people to not really grasp how sick I am, because on the outside, I look mostly like myself. The other part is the part that's a curse, (laughs) is when you don't look sick on the outside, that is it. Then people don't really realize how severely ill you are. So I say that if I looked on the outside the way my body is A train wreck on the inside that I would scare not only children, but adults also. So at least this illness, um, you know, hasn't done that.
0: Are there any any steps to getting diagnosed properly?
1: Diagnosis, unfortunately, is a challenge as there are not very many doctors who know anything about ME. ME is not discussed in medical school and it's not even discussed in nursing school at this point. Um, and I believe that nurses and doctors need to be educated on this illness so that patients can get the kind of care that they need, the proper diagnosis for me I was diagnosed nine months into my illness by an ME specialist that happens to um, have an office in Southern California, but I'm unique in that case. I'm not one of the, uh, I'm basically outside of the norm because a lot of places don't even have an ME specialist anywhere near, so people have spent years and years trying to get diagnosed, going from doctor to doctor who can explain their illness.
0: So it took you nine months to get diagnosed. What is, what is the average time for for somebody else to get diagnosed?
1: Um, years. <laughs> Almost everyone else that I have spoken with who has ME, and I've talked to a lot of ME warriors since I've been ill. Most of them, it took years to get diagnosis. diagnosis. Um And I actually talk to ME warriors, not just in this country, but all over the world. So it's not just our country that has this issue with not taking this illness serious, with not researching this illness. It is the same in the rest of the world.
0: What are the symptoms of ME? And specifically, what what are your symptoms?
1: Okay, so for me, (laughs) I have a lot of symptoms. I have something that's called brain fog. Brain fog. What brain fog is is a cognitive dysfunction, and for me, because brain fog affects everyone differently, you know, there's some people that their memory is impacted, which mine is. Um, there are other people like me who have difficulty comprehending what they read. Like I can read, I can say the words, but for it to like actually go in my head, it doesn't. It doesn't connect like it used to before I was ill. Um, I also have numbness and tingling in my hands and feet. I have very severe GI problems. Every kind of bad GI symptom that you can think of, I've had it. I Trust me. Um, it causes muscle weakness. My muscle weakness is profound. Um, it also causes literally bone-crushing fatigue. I mean, this type of fatigue is worse than <laughs> when I was a nurse. I worked night shift, and I would be um, on the first night of three, Work three nights in a row, only sleeping maybe four hours in between each shift if I was lucky. And again, night shifts or any shifts for nurses are 12 hours. So I would sleep about four hours in between, go to work for 12 hours, sleep for four hours, do it again. On the last day, there were times where I wouldn't be able to go to sleep right when I got home because I'm a single mother so I have children and responsibilities. So I would have to stay awake and by the time I went to sleep I had been awake well over 24 hours and the fatigue that I experienced then is a joke compared to the fatigue that comes with myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um yeah, that's it.
0: Right. So we're talk so that so that's why um the common name for it is chronic fatigue syndrome, because that's one of the main symptoms that that's apparent.
1: Um, The thing is, yes, fatigue is one of the symptoms, but when you say chronic fatigue syndrome, you trivialize the illness and people think that we're just tired. They don't are lazy or we don't want to work or whatever the case, but that's not it at all whatsoever. The brain fog is real. Um, There are people who have a lot of pain, There are, um, like I said about myself, there's musculoskeletal issues, so the muscle weakness. Um, I told you about the GI issues that I have. And um, so I hate, not I hate, but (laughs) I don't really like when people say chronic fatigue syndrome because really for me, the fatigue is bad, but to me, that's not my worst symptom. To me, I feel like... The brain fog and the muscle weakness, which keeps me from being able to walk outside of my home, is what is worse than the fatigue. So, again, when you say chronic fatigue syndrome, you trivialize the illness. So I prefer the term myalgic encephalomyelitis. But I do say, I will say, I do find that more people have heard of chronic fatigue syndrome than myalgic encephalomyelitis.
0: Okay, so for today's show, we'll, I'll, I'll make sure I'll say M-E, yeah, you can say M-E. <laughs> instead of uh, C-F-S. You're right, you're right. Okay, so M-E, you are our M-E warrior. Now, fibromyalgia versus M-E, is, are there the similarities? Is it a sim- similar diagnosis track They're, or what?
1: They are similar, and there are a lot of M-E warriors that also have fibromyalgia, um, But they are similar. However, fibromyalgia is another illness that isn't well researched or understood. So, I mean, who knows? Somewhere down the line, they might decide that these two illnesses are sisters or something. But again, because no one has done enough research to figure it out, you know, it's just (laughs) we're not really sure. But do see some sort of correlation, you know, with people, people's experiences, not necessarily the doctors. Because in illnesses like this, which is considered an is- invisible illness, as I stated earlier. Um, it seems like the patients know more about the illness than doctors.
0: I, um, during the research for, for the show, I, I saw that a lot of people were using the terms, people, the doctors who don't believe that this is a real disease, they use a term called hysteria.
1: Yes, um, they used. They don't. I don't think they use hysteria as much anymore. Maybe some older doctors, because that was a term that was used for um, women back in the day, basically to describe their symptoms when doctors couldn't figure out what they were caused by. Now, hysteria may have been Emmy. We don't know for sure, but the symptoms are similar with you know neurologic deficits, um, physical deficits, etc.
0: Now, if somebody who's listening today and and if they have any of these symptoms, where should they go?
1: Okay. So if they're listening today and actually live in the Southern California area, there are actually two places that they could go. Um, one is Dr. John Shia. He is located in Torrance, way deep in Torrance, on Hawthorne Boulevard. He is an infectious disease doctor who is also an ME specialist. He has been studying and treating patients with ME for over 20 years. And his phone number, in case you would like it, is area code 310-784-5880. Again, for anyone who missed it, it's 310 784 880. And his last name is spelled Chia, like Chia seeds. So C-H-I-A. Another place that is in Southern California is Holtorf Medical Group. They're located in El Segundo. And their phone number is area code 310-375-2705. Again, 310-375-2705. They also treat patients with myalgic encephalomyelitis, and they have a more holistic naturopathic approach, um, but they are very knowledgeable because there are very few doctors that are knowledgeable about this illness. Now, if you're in Northern California, there's Stanford. Stanford has a whole EME <laughs> department, so if you want to travel, you can make an appointment there, but for Dr. Chia and also Stanford Usually a new patient appointment will be many, 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 many months away from when you make it.
0: One of the other myths I understand is that exercise cures it.
1: Ah, That's a joke. (laughs) It really is a joke. So there used to be this idea that graded exercise therapy, G-E-T, would help people with this illness with their fatigue, right? No. In fact, it harms people. With this illness, it makes us sicker. There is something called post-exertional malaise, which comes after really any activity. And that I'm talking about the smallest activity you can think of. Taking a shower, you know, people who are able to maybe cook themselves a meal or, you know, washing clothes. Like literally the smallest activity can trigger a worsening in your symptoms and it can last for days, weeks, months, or it can be permanent for me, before I got diagnosed, I decided, hey, I've been sick. At this point, I had been sick for about five months and unable to work out. I mean, I was too ill. But I decided, let me try yoga. You know, it's not the same high intensity interval training that I was accustomed to before becoming ill. But it's something yoga is good for your mind, body and spirit. So I joined yoga studio. I went and I took beginner yoga, and every time I took a class there, I was literally bedridden for three days after the class. And I couldn't figure out why. I thought to myself, like, what in the world is going on? But me and my determined personality, (laughs) me and my willpower were like, let's go back. So every time after those three days, I would go back for another class. And the same thing would happen, bedridden for three days. Finally, the last class that I took at the yoga studio, I was so sick, I almost passed out in the studio. Now, you guys, yoga? (laughs) Yoga is like the most, you know, lightweight exercise that you can. I'm talking about beginner yoga. This is not the advanced, the beginner. So at that point, I realized, okay, I am clearly doing more harm to my body than good, so I won't go to yoga anymore. But as I stated, that was before my diagnosis, so I had no idea that what I was experiencing was actually post-exertional malaise. I also went, took a walk with a friend, and after that walk, I was bedridden for five days. Um, And again, this was all prior to my diagnosis. Now I know, and I know better that, you know, unfortunately, I have become sicker, from when I was, you know, prior to diagnosis. And so my symptoms are worse. Um, So, yeah, for me, anything as small as a shower and I sit down to shower, I have a shower chair because if I stand in the shower, I will pass out. Um, And even sitting in the shower, I often suffer with post-exertional malaise afterwards for days and
0: days. And this is really considered um, more common than multiple sclerosis?
1: Yes, it is considered to be more common than multiple sclerosis. But because most doctors are not familiar with it, it's underdiagnosed. Um, and particularly in people of color who tend to not have the same access to health care and or mistrust health care. So we found, find that there are many, many, many people living within me who just have not been diagnosed as yet.
0: Right, 17 million people around the world, from what I understand. Correct. Who've been diagnosed. Right. Right. Correct. So we probably can, <laughs> what, well, you're, since you're a registered nurse, what do you think? Maybe double it?
1: Yeah, at least double. Double <laughs> At least it? double.
0: Wow. And then that eighty percent or eighty-five percent of ME sufferers are women.
1: Yes, that's correct. It's about seventy-five to eighty-five percent are women, which is why there has been so much difficulty in getting research, getting medication for this illness, because of structural violence. And what that is, is the healthcare system basically brushes women off when they come in complaining of various symptoms. They try to say we're anxious. They try to say we're depressed. They try to say that our physical symptoms are as a result of psychological illness, not physical illness. And so they basically brush us off and we're not able to get care. So that is the way that we experience structural violence in healthcare. And for myself, being a registered nurse, I never thought that I would be a victim of structural violence. I thought that that couldn't happen to me because I know how to advocate for myself. I know both sides of the healthcare industry. I'll be fine. I was wrong <laughs> because it happened to me, and I experienced two doctors. Who one of them just was kind. He never directly said that it was in my head. He just kept thinking that my physical symptoms were as a result of an asthma exacerbation. Now. Yes, I initially presented with a respiratory symptoms and they mimicked an asthma attack. I have a history of asthma. However, once I continue to be sick with non-asthmatic symptoms weeks and weeks and then months and months after being ill, it was very clear to me that this wasn't just asthma. And I told my pulmonologist, this is not just asthma. There is something more insidious going around, going on. And I need to be referred to other doctors.
0: Okay, so you know what? Before we go start into your story, okay. let's take a break. Okay. And then we'll go full steam ahead into Ashanti's story. I'm your host, Angela Birdsong, and you're listening to Conversation Piece on RadioJustice.org with Ashanti Daniel, warrior of M.E., a disease that medicine forgot. We'll be back with Ashanti's story. Morning and circled round my lonely room. I didn't know why I had that sad and lonely feeling
1: until my baby called
0: and said, We're through. According to an Institute of Medicine report, An estimated 836,000 to 2.5 million Americans suffer from ME. But most of them have not been diagnosed. Welcome back to Conversation Piece. I'm your host Angela Birdsong with guest Ashanti Daniel M.E. Warrior. Ashanti, tell us your story from from the beginning. Who who were you before before you had gotten sick before before your lungs had before you had thought you were having a really bad asthma attack? Who who you were? What you were doing? What was your life? Okay.
1: Before I became ill with ME, I was literally living my best life. I was traveling. I would work out four to five days a week doing high intensity interval training. So I wasn't just doing like something very light. I mean, I was really, really, really using my body, really, really, really using my lungs, um, and they were in good shape. I was the picture of health. Everything was great. I ate healthy. I didn't drink, didn't smoke. I've never even been drunk in my life. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm almost 40, so. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) So I literally was the picture of health. And then all of a sudden, I got a virus, which I didn't. In the beginning, know that it was a virus because, as we've stated, it attacked my lungs. So I did present with asthmatic symptoms. I was wheezing, um, short of breath, etc. But there was one symptom that didn't quite match the fact that it was an asthma exacerbation, and that was voice hoarseness. So a little bit of history about me is I had a total thyroidectomy many years ago in two thousand nine. I have vocal cord paralysis on the right side that was there actually prior to and never returned after the thyroidectomy. But because my vocal cord is paralyzed in the middle, I always have had a normal sounding voice. Well, that was until I became sick with what I found out later was in me. So I was admitted to the hospital for what they called a severe asthma exacerbation. And I thought, this is odd. I have not been this sick with asthma in 20 years. I hadn't been hospitalized for my asthma in 20 years. It was very well controlled. As I stated, I was working out vigorously, and I was fine. So I'm like, okay, this is odd. I'm like, okay, well, maybe my lungs, you know, something's going wrong. Maybe I got a virus. That's what I thought to myself. And I didn't get well,
0: so... Right, right, you know um we we can just take our time, we can take our time telling 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 your story, and um i I totally understand that when you're telling your personal story, it feels like you're reliving it. <laughs> Uh, and and we also and we want to be real with the audience. Um, she, she, sometimes she's experiencing some of that brain fog yes. as, as, as as she's talking. So got we got don't want to cover up because anybody <laughs> out there who um, who may have some of these symptoms and and you don't know what to do because your doctors don't know what to do. They think it's in your head. They they just don't know because there's no medicine to give you to cover up the symptom. There is nothing in in their their medical books in the PED to show, oh, you have this symptom, you're doing this, let's give them this drug. There aren't any drugs. And Ashanti as, as when when we get to that part of, of her story because um during one of the breaks she had told us or and one of her friends who's with her one of her um, nursing school friends who won't be on the mic with us unfortunately today but she she told us you should see her 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 bits her, her bedside bit nightstand is filled with medicine and supplements and she's been decreasing the amount so now it has you know it's probably not Every um, part of of the nightstand isn't full, but only part of it is right. full. Right. But but take your time with telling your it's your story. It's your story, and and only we only know it as as you tell us. So we we have an hour, but we can always do a part two <laughs> <laughs> if if we need to, okay. to to get to get through the brain fogs. But but you were saying that um, you were. You knew it was more than an asthma attack right. because of your, your vocal cords and that you have had your thyroid removed. So you had some paralysis in there, but the, the hoarseness well, was, was one of the um, first alerts for you that this was something different. Yes. That's and so, so you're going to the doctor about the asthma. They probably, well, I
1: was admitted to the hospital. Okay, you yeah. were admitted to
0: the hospital. <laughs> And how long were you in the hospital? So I
1: actually ended up admitted to the hospital twice in the month of August, both with these respiratory symptoms, which, again, was very unusual as I hadn't been hospitalized for asthma in over 20 years. And as Angela stated, yes, brain fog often makes me lose my train of thought. Before this illness, I was a great speaker. I could go on and on without losing any thought. <laughs> um, but now it's really a challenge. So in the middle of telling my story, I totally forgot what I was trying to say. I don't even know the point that I was trying to make. And it hasn't come back. So that's fine. I'll just go ahead and it was keep telling going my story. just right here. Because yes. That's what it is. That's what this life is like. So um, this is real. <laughs> and yes. I want to be transparent in my experience so that you really understand and grasp the severity of this illness. So like I stated, I was hospitalized twice in the month of August for these asthmatic type symptoms. Now, another little background about myself is my dad died of a rare autoimmune condition. It was, it did not present in the typical way that you see that illness present. And it was very aggressive from the time of his diagnosis to his death was less than two weeks and he was in the hospital receiving treatment. Now, my dad had lung involvement only. So when I was in the hospital and I'm now back in the hospital another time, you know, this is both in August... I'm like, oh no, am I sick with what my dad had? So you know, I talked to my pulmonologist and he did agree to do a CAT scan just to make sure that there wasn't any sort of lung disease that we needed to be aware of and there wasn't any that could be seen. So that was fine. Discharged home after a week, that second hospitalization and I was extremely weak. I was actually weak before that hospitalization but it seems like I got even more (laughs) weak during the hospitalization. And so I would follow up with my pulmonologist regularly. He had me on all kind of medications. He had put me on, there was nothing on my chest x-ray that showed any kind of pneumonia or anything. But sometimes they find that in asthmatics, if you treat them with antibiotics, that that helps with the inflammation and the symptoms or capture some sort of vi- um, bacteria that they can't see on the chest x-ray. So I was discharged with an arsenal. (laughs) I had an arsenal of meds for asthma and kept going to my pulmonologist. And finally, as time went by and I wasn't having any improvement in my weakness or my fatigue or my hoarseness, I mean, all these other weird symptoms that I had never experienced before with asthma. So I tell my pulmonologist like, okay, I need a referral to an allergist. I thought, let me see an allergist because maybe I suddenly have some food allergy that I'm unaware of or some additional environmental allergy that I'm being exposed to or something. I mean, at this point, I was just grasping for for straws, but I just wanted to start somewhere. Um, And for a long time, he just said, no, this is just a severe asthma exacerbation. And he continued to treat me as such. And I thought to myself, like, No, this doesn't make sense. If I was elderly or had some other comorbidities such as diabetes, high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, anything like that, it would make sense that an asthma attack could make me this sick and take this long for me to recover. But remember, I was basically an athlete. I mean, I was fit. I looked like a trainer, so I was in the best shape. It doesn't make sense that an asthma attack could make me so sick that I can barely make it from my bedroom to my bathroom which is connected to my bedroom. Eventually, my pulmonologist gave in and gave me a referral to an allergist. So that's where it all began, where I finally started to get somewhere, at least with seeing another doctor. And of note, I had HMO insurance at the time, so it wasn't like I could just schedule an appointment with a doctor myself. I mean, I could have done that, but I would have had to pay out of pocket, and that doesn't make sense when you have insurance and you can get a referral. So I just needed my doctor to agree to give me that referral. He finally did. And I saw the allergies, no new food allergies, no new environmental allergies, just the same ones I've had most of my life. I mean, he told me I was allergic to breathing, but hey, that's fine. (laughs) Like I have been allergic to breathing my whole life, so nothing changed. I was fine. And then... He thought, actually, that I had something called hereditary angioedema. So this is an illness that is very, very, very rare. And he had run some blood tests, and some of those blood tests for that illness came up. Um, And I was like, hmm some of the symptoms of that illness is swelling. You get swelling either external or internal. They see a lot of swelling in the GI tract. And I was like, hmm, at this point, I was having GI symptoms. I'm like, oh, well, maybe it could be. You know, again, we're grasping for straws. And I did have that one blood test that coincided with this illness. So I ended up hospitalized in November of, this is all in 2016, in November 2016 with, Basically, what they ended up diagnosing as a hereditary angioedema attack. My presenting symptoms were um, I wasn't able to eat for about a week prior to being admitted to the hospital, I could drink liquids. I could have broth, but I could not eat anything solid. Anything that I had that was solid literally felt like it was getting stuck the entire time. It went down my esophagus um, and into my stomach. I mean, it was excruciating pain. So who's going to keep eating when you feel like that? I mean, I literally felt like I was going to choke, suffocate. I mean... I can't even describe what it felt like, but it was scary because I'm like, what is going on with me? I've never had this problem and I'm eating healthy foods. It's not that, you know, I didn't have food allergies, so it can't be something I'm eating. And um, so they thought that it was this HAE attack. That's what hereditary angioedema is called for short. I had multiple tests in the hospital. They treated me with fresh frozen plasma, which is one of the ways that they treat hereditary angioedema attacks. And I seemed to respond to the fresh frozen plasma after a couple of days. So I was in the hospital in November 2016 over Thanksgiving. That was about nine or 10 day hospitalization. Got out still wasn't better. So hey, you guys think I have HAE? Okay, that explains maybe this GI problem that I'm having, but it doesn't explain the rest of my symptoms. There's nowhere that says HAE comes with profound muscle weakness or fatigue or any of that. So I'm like, okay, that may be one piece of the puzzle, but it definitely isn't the whole puzzle. So I continued on. I finally got to see an infectious disease specialist that I requested. I go to the doctor and he was Completely useless. He gave me an order for a couple of blood tests. Nothing really extra special. He did test me for some parasites, but that's because I asked for that testing. I, you know, advocated for myself. So he agreed to run those tests. I went and had them done. It was all unremarkable. So then because I was going to other specialists, I'm like, let me get copies of my medical records just so that I have them. Although most of the specialists obviously had access to my medical record, but still I wanted to have copies. So I get a copy of his consult note. This infectious disease specialist had the audacity to write on his consult note that my symptoms were um, due to a psychological problem. I mean, he I'm like, hmm, you spent less than 10 minutes with me. You didn't even physically examine me like you didn't even touch me you didn't even listen to my heart or my lungs or anything and you have the audacity to put in my console note that my symptoms are caused by or have a psychological basis absolutely not so I sent that doctor a not so nice email and told him about himself and demanded that he remove that incorrect information from my chart and he did he appended the console note and took it out of there thank god I was lucky because that doesn't happen for other people but because I knew how to advocate for myself with my you know background as a nurse I said all the things I needed to say and he totally agreed he apologized he said he had no right to include that and he shouldn't have so anyway got through that Then I go from specialist to specialist to specialist to specialist. I'm talking about multiple neurologists, rheumatologists, another pulmonologist. I mean, almost any kind of specialty you can think of. Gastroenterology, all of them. And it wasn't until I was hospitalized again in April of 2017 that I found out about M.E., I actually found out about ME from my sisters. (laughs) They were helping me with the research all along, trying to uncover what was causing my symptoms. I mean, we came up with all different kinds of things, but my symptoms matched ME, and I found that there was an ME specialist um, locally, and I made an appointment. I finally, I actually was not supposed to see him until August 2017, just because he's booked many, many months in advance. However, I saw him, and receive my diagnosis of ME on International ME Awareness Day, which is on May 12th every year and it's worldwide. So for me, my diagnosis was on May 12th, 2017. And it was Dr. Chia, the doctor that I talked about earlier in Torrance, that diagnosed me. So here it was. I finally had a diagnosis. But I mean, I'm stuck. <laughs> like, this is an illness that there is no FDA approved meds for. There's no, nothing, literally nothing. I mean, you're left to your own, do your own research, try to see what other ME warriors have done, what has helped them, what hasn't helped them, what kind of diets are they doing. I mean, everything is just, just try anything. And because you're so sick and so desperate to feel better, I mean, you try anything. I've been on I don't even know how many different supplements throughout the course of this two-year illness. I mean, I've tried some of everything. I went to a holistic healing place for a week in San Diego. I mean, I did, I've did. i done everything, and I continue to because I want to get well. I miss my old life, but this is a chronic illness, and chronic means that there's no cure. So really, without a miracle or some miraculous breakthrough in research, which that would be at least 20-plus years away, um, I'm going to have this illness for the rest of my life and have to learn how to accept the fact that life as I knew it pre and me no longer exists.
0: That's a lot. It is. Yeah. Nine months to get a diagnosis. Yes. Nine months. And four hospitalizations. Yes. During that time. Yes. And um, so... Who who came up with the description of me for you?
1: Um, Actually, my sisters are the ones that found the research because throughout the time, like my girlfriend said, she was helping me research, I was researching, and then my sisters were researching as well because we're all trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Like, I'm not getting better. They keep coming up with these diagnoses that don't explain everything, so there obviously is something else going on. So it was my sisters, and I looked on the website and saw that there was a doctor locally and made an appointment so that I could find out what's going on
0: okay well when we come back we'll um talk further about the disease and your diagnosis journey and start to give some resources to to everybody um who may not be able to advocate for themselves as well as you did and who may not be in an area where me is is studied right yeah. You're listening to Conversation Peace on Radio Justice Morning Wake-Up Call. I'm your host, Angela Birdsong, and we will hear more from Ashanti Daniel, neonatal intensive care unit registered nurse who is opening up about her illness that doctors told her was all in her head. We'll be right back. Africa,
1: won't you raise your
0: face?
1: See yourself
0: in, in the face of your maker. Oh, yeah, 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 Oh, Africa. Won't Ashanti, you I, where did, where did you go? We know you went to different doctors, multiple doctors, and finally got diagnosed after nine months. But Family, where you said your sisters helped you with the final, um, getting the final um, diagnosis that you your symptoms um, matched me. But where do you go for support? That 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 family support. What was your family's response to this whole journey, this for nine me, month journey all the way to now? <laughs>
1: right for me, I've had I've been fortunate enough to have a village. Um, a lot of people with ME, their family doesn't believe them, so they are left to fend for themselves, and these are people who are primarily housebound and are bedbound, so can you imagine if you can't leave your bed and there's no one at home to cook for you, no one at home to wash your clothes, no one at home to help you do anything? It's just, I mean, it's scary, but for me, I've been fortunate. My mother lives with me, and prepares all my meals. I'm not able to cook for myself or anything like that. She prepares meals for my son. I have a 13-year-old son. I also have a 21-year-old daughter, but my daughter is a senior now at Penn State University in Pennsylvania, so she's only home during the holidays and over the summer so when she is home she's a tremendous help she's also cooking and she's cleaning and she's washing clothes and she's taking me to all my doctor's appointments because thank god she can drive i am not able to drive anymore and have been unable to drive for over a year now so she was a huge help over the summer she goes grocery shopping she does everything literally she was like the mom and i was a kid so that actually also helped her grandma get a break then i have a really, really good support system with my friends. My best friend, she will come. I mean, one of the appointments that I have is in Torrance. She lives closer to Torrance than I do, and she has no problem with coming all the way to my house to pick me up, which is the complete opposite direction, take me to my appointment way down in Torrance, and then bring me all the way back, and then finally go back to her house. And I've just been truly, truly blessed, I'll say, with people who have really been in my corner, people who, when my daughter is not home, they'll take my son to his appointments, our baby baseball family has been amazing. My son has been blessed enough to still be able to play baseball because the families have been so supportive, picking him up for games, taking him to practice, and it's just been amazing. And I'm truly grateful because I see other ME Warriors, and I'm in several groups on Facebook for people with ME, and they tell their, their stories and their experiences with their family, and even, I mean, their parents sometimes don't believe them, their spouses. We, they found that more men leave their wives versus the other way around. Because although there are 15, per, 15 to 25 percent of people with ME are men, um, they found that their women tend to stay, their wives or girlfriends or significant others. So, yeah.
0: Now, also, I, you, I noticed that one of the other um, statistics around ME that there's a high suicide rate. And I guess when no one believes you, you're left to your own thoughts, and it's like this just needs to end. What keeps you going?
1: um for me, I just wanna touch on the suicide thing a little bit. The thing is, it's not just being left to your thoughts. It's actually the physical suffering for which there is literally nothing to help. I mean, there are some holistic things you can try and some things work for some people, but not for others. But I mean, there are people I know of one woman that committed suicide. She had been suffering for years and years and years unable to even sleep on her bed sheets because she felt like she was on fire. Her entire body was on fire. She was so sensitive to the material. And she lived in a country where assisted suicide is available. And so she finally, after many, many years of suffering, I mean, she had been sick, I believe, for like 20-plus years, and she finally decided she couldn't take it anymore. I mean, she didn't have family to help her, and she was suffering, and there was no end to her suffering in sight. So it's like... She had nothing to hope for. Now, for me, I've been, I mean, none of this is fortunate, but I guess there are some silver linings. So at least I was diagnosed at a time where there's more being done for Emmy. ME. I mean, we're still a long way away, but at least I can see like okay, there's some research going on at Stanford. I mean, you know, we really need the National Institutes of Health in Maryland to take this illness serious and start allocating funds for research there because that's where we'll see the much be- the most benefit. So, I say positive affirmations every day. I meditate I always try to look for silver linings, and I'm not going to lie. I mean, there are times where I can't find the silver linings. I mean, some days are really, really, really bad, but there's always tomorrow, and tomorrow generally comes with silver linings. And because I've been so blessed with so much support, that has made a huge difference. Because if I didn't have my mom or my friends or my daughter, I mean— Well, first of all, I probably would have died of starvation by now because I can't cook for myself. I can't even make it to my kitchen. So just imagine laying in your bed, unable to care for yourself. I mean, what's going to happen? You can't eat. So... I've been blessed to have those people behind me. But for the others who suffer with this illness and don't have that, I just can't even imagine. And one thing I will say also that was not mentioned earlier is that this is a spectrum disorder, similar to how MS is a spectrum disorder. So there are people that are mildly ill. There are people that are moderately ill. There are people who are severely ill and then very severe. So. People who are on the worst end of the spectrum, of course, need more support. There's actually a gentleman in, he's located up north, in fact, and he has been bedridden for years. I don't even know how many years, but he's unable to eat, so he um, is on TPN, which is total parenteral nutrition, basically through an IV that's in his arm, Um, and he really doesn't speak he has to stay in a dark room he has to have headphones on he has to have eye mask on because a lot of people within me have a symptom of light sensitivity sound sensitivity and even some people have tactile sensitivity so some people can't tolerate hugs or any of that because it causes them so much anguish and pain
0: amazing what are some of the the negative setbacks that you have experienced with with this disease personally from from so we already know that you have a a, a great village mm-hmm. around you. What about those that may not be so understanding?
1: Right. So with this illness, I have missed I don't even know how many. I mean, I've missed weddings, I've missed birthday celebrations, I've missed so much of my son's baseball. And before I became ill, I was literally the baseball mom of the year. I mean, not to toot my own horn, but <laughs> I literally never missed a game. I never missed a practice. I would go without. Well, no, I did miss practice, but I never missed a game. I would go without sleep. For example, there were sometimes he had 830 or 9 a.m. in the morning games and I would have just worked the night prior from 7 p.m. to 7.30 a.m., and I fly from the hospital to the baseball field in my scrubs to be there to support my son. There were other times where he had games in the evening and maybe I had to work that night, so I would go to his games in my scrubs, stay at the game to the last second to still make it to work on time. Um, I was, you know, so to be unable to see my son play baseball has been devastating. I mean, yeah, he's been as understanding as a 13 year old can be. I believe that kids are very resilient and there are points where he was really struggling, but now he's um, not struggling as much. And I did Get some resources for him to help him cope and deal with this because his entire life has been turned upside down. I mean, my life has too, but I'm an adult, you know, he's still a kid. So there's things that he's missing out on that he wouldn't have missed out on if it wasn't for the fact that I'm ill and I'm just not able to be there or take him or do that, you know. And
0: does he understand?
1: He gets it. I'm not sure. Sh- I don't think he understands as much as like my daughter, but my daughter's 21. He's only 13. So I think he understands as much as his 13-year-old brain can. And he sees me. I mean, he lives in my house, of course. And so he sees me. He sees my struggles. And he asks me almost every day, how are you today, Mom? How are you feeling? And, you know, he fills my water bottle and just things that he can do. But he's limited. I mean, he can't cook me a meal, you know. <laughs> not yet, at least. Right, maybe he can a make peanut,
0: butter oatmeal, but he <laughs> peanut butter butter jelly sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) right right so. so how are you doing today
1: today thank god is a fairly decent day the thing about ME is you can never predict how you're going to feel. I mean, I can have had a decent day the day prior and wake up and feel like I was run over by a train. Or it can be the other way around. One one day I wake up and I feel like I was run over by a train. But the next day I actually feel sort of decent. Like maybe I can actually not just be trapped in my bed all day, you know. So... Yeah, (laughs) I thank God for today because these days for me are far and few between. And that's why, you know, I'm not reliable, basically. I used to be a woman of my word, no matter what. If I said I was going to do something, be there for something, I was there. If I RSVP'd, I was there. Now I'm like, well, I'm going to try to make it if my illness allows. Like that's always my RSVP is my, if my illness allows, you know. And of course, being as sick as I am, That impacts my ability to like travel. I cannot travel anywhere too far. And the times that I have traveled since becoming ill, there have been maybe once or twi- twice, maybe I had to be with someone and it was short flight less than an hour because even just flying and you're sitting down for the flight, even just flying causes post exertional malaise. So you get a worsening of your symptoms for days, weeks, months or permanently. And you never know when it's going to be that time that is permanent worsening of your symptoms. Like it's you're unable to predict it. What
0: so. do you mean? What do you mean by permanent?
1: Permanent meaning that you never return to your previous baseline. So, you know, everyone's baseline with this illness is different. We all have, you know, suffer differently and have different things that impact us. But there's a baseline of, you know, our best day, I guess you can say. So when the post-exertional malaise is permanent, you never return to that best day that was there before the post-exertional malaise happened. And actually, I think... That, that is part of the reason why I'm sicker is because um, I didn't know earlier on that, first of all, before diagnosis, I had no idea that pers- post-exertional malaise was even a thing. So, of course, I couldn't. Um, change my actions accordingly. But even since becoming ill, I think there were times where I pushed myself more than I should have. And now I mean, I'm paying the price. Like I t- it said earlier, I can't drive. I spend most of my time literally in my bed, um, definitely in my house. I mean, I get out for doctor's appointments, I have to be driven, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm not able to walk outside of my home. I mean, it's it's a nightmare. And when I first became ill, I was weak. But it At least I was still able to walk. I was still able to drive. But um, now because of I've had post-exertion malaise from different things that I wasn't aware of. And now I'm worse as a result.
0: When you say you're unable to to drive, is it um, that it. It takes a lot of physical exertion. You can't concentrate. Your, your body can't um, do those motor functions. What, what does it mean when you, you're unable to drive?
1: For me, it's a combination of both. Number one, it's unsafe. If I was on the road, <laughs> it's a very high probi- um, probability that myself or whoever's in my car, or the other people could be killed. So for me, it's both physical and also the brain. So physically, I am very, very weak. And of course, everyone who drives knows driving a vehicle required, if you have to make an emergency maneuver, you need a little bit of strength. I mean, you don't have to be superwoman, but you need some sort of muscle strength so you can turn the wheel quickly, you can slam on the brakes, etc. For me, often my legs are trembling, even when I'm just... Trying to get from my bedroom to my bathroom, which is connected to my bedroom, my legs are trembling. So, can you imagine trying to put your foot on a brake or a gas pedal and your legs are so weak that they're trembling? How are you going to apply enough pressure to safely navigate the vehicle? And then the other problem is the brain fog, the ability to focus and concentrate. I mean, I've been driving for a really long time, but The last time I drove, I have no idea how I made it home. I was in a total blur. Like, I I don't even know. I don't know what streets I went on, any of that. I just wasn't really there because I wasn't focused. I wasn't concentrating. And it wasn't even autopilot. I know there's a thing called autopilot. No, this is like brain failure. Like, the brain fog is just so bad that you just can't safely navigate. And I just thank God that that last time I drove, that no one was injured or killed. But I know that I can no longer trust my body or my brain to keep myself or others safe behind the wheel. So,
0: And you you decided, I'm going to tell myself to stop driving or just someone else?
1: I decided on my own because, you know, I, I'm a nurse. I'm a, you know, I love people and I would never be able to live with myself if I caused someone to be hurt or worse, killed because I shouldn't have been behind the wheel. When I know better, I know I shouldn't be driving you know
0: right so a a self-imposed restriction yes from from driving i i know um doing our physically not able (laughs) physically not able my legs are trembling like
1: can't that doesn't work (laughs) right
0: oh my goodness i need
1: to be able to hold the wheel and turn the wheel you know those things are no i'm weak (laughs) i've you know my muscle weakness
0: and you also have some cardiac problems too Mm
1: -hmm. so i also have something that people within me commonly have, which is dysautonomia. So it's a dysfunction of your um, autonomic nervous system. And what comes with that is typically POTS. Like POTS stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. What happens with that is one, my blood pressure runs very low people within me tend to be chronically dehydrated, which explains the low blood pressure. And I drink tons and tons of fluid every day, but I never can seem to get on top of that. So, I mean, my blood pressure has been, for those of you out there who know blood pressure has been as low as 80 over 40. I'm a grown adult. That's not a blood pressure that you should have, but that's what it is within me. And if I don't Even when I sit at the end of my bed and dangle my feet before I stand up, there are still times where I stand up and everything goes black. I have to hold on to the wall. I mean, I have balance issues. I mean, there's a number of symptoms that come with this. I have um, palpitations, which are where your heart is racing rapidly. And also something that I notice is even when I'm in the shower, the times that I can make it into the shower, my heart rate, a normal adult heart rate is 60 to 100 beats per minute. I'm sitting down on a chair in the shower and my heart rate when I'm in there is usually in the one fifties. That shouldn't happen. That's not normal at all whatsoever. I mean, that's the heart rate for someone that's running. Like I sh- if I have a heart rate in the one fifties, I should be sprinting. <laughs> like I mean, it's just too high to be doing something as minimal as taking a shower. And that's something that even myself, I took for granted before I became ill. I took two showers a day, long showers. I love the shower. So to be physically unable to get myself in the shower every day has been Oh God, it's it's been really hard. It's been really, really, really a challenge to cope with.
0: So high pulse rate, low blood pressure, not being able to physically take a shower, drive. How do you help other people who have ME?
1: So because I was diagnosed on International ME Awareness Day, to me, that was a sign that I need to do the best that I can because, of course, this illness limits me. But do the best that I can to advocate for all ME warriors, especially the ones who cannot advocate for themselves. So I've sort of used my social media as a tool for advocating my Facebook. I'm on Facebook under my name, Ashanti Daniel. I'm on Instagram under... Ashanti R-N, so that's R for registered, N for nurse. Um, and although I am unable to work anymore, I'm still a nurse, and I will always be a nurse at heart even when my body fails me and doesn't allow me to perform, you know, my career. There is a documentary that you guys can watch, and it's very very informative it's called unrest and it was directed by jennifer brea who is also an emmy warrior it is available on netflix so you guys have no excuse you can watch it for free um there are also hashtags on social media that you can look up especially instagram instagram has it now where you can click on a hashtag to look at other posts with that same hashtag so one of them is millions missing so you'll see hashtag millions missing and what that is is that's for all the Emmy warriors who are missing from their lives. So like for me, I'm missing from nursing. I'm missing from being a baseball mom. I'm missing from flying to Penn State to go to football games with my daughter, which is what we talked about before she started college there. Um, I'm missing from a lot of things. But every May 12th, there's a Millions Missing March in multiple countries literally all over the world and everyone bands together and there are t-shirts that say hashtag millions missing um, and we try to advocate for other ME warriors discuss you know what can be done on the you know and the government on NIH I mean all these areas where we need people to do something and get moving so millions missing because we're all missing from our lives there's people missing from dancing there's people missing from being doctors I mean you name it people are missing from it and so that's what that hashtag stands for there's also hashtag time for unrest which I think is self-explanatory that has to do with the documentary unrest so you look under that hashtag and you will see Multiple posts by Emmy Warriors all over the world, not just in the United States. Additionally, um, there is the Emmy Action Network. You can go to their website, you can sign up for their. Um, newsletter that will come via email and they have a lot of information about, you know, government petitions to sign. Also they have they host, you know, meetings to try to get together and try to figure out how we can address the fact that this illness is not taught in med school. Some of the best facilities in the country know nothing about it. I mean UCLA is one of the best countries. Cedar Sinai Medical Center is one of the best in this country and there's no specialist at either of those places for people within me. We are in desperate need of able bodied people to join in our fight for research because most of us are too sick to advocate for ourselves. And even for me, I advocate as much as I can. But there are many, many days where it's impossible. I can't. So we need able bodied people on board because you guys will be the ones to help create change.
0: Ashanti, thank you so much. Thank you to Leslie Radford, the visionary of RJLA, Adam Rice, program director, Michael Washington of MWASH Soul for the opening and closing theme song, and always you, our RJLA family. Remember to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be brave, be courageous, and let all that you do be done with love.